World War I also resembles all wars before it in significant ways that it does not resemble current wars, but does resemble how people still think of wars. That was David Swanson, and you're listening to Choose Life, Abort War, podcast for peace. Choose life that we might be. Choose peace that we might see our tomorrow. Let justice roll like a river, flow like a river down. Thanks for joining us at our first episode of Choose Life Abort War, a podcast for peace where we have conversations to change our public conversation about peace by unmasking militarism, including war as a respect life issue, creating a culture of conscience and promoting a just peace ethic. And for this first episode, I'm so thrilled to have David Swanson joining us today. David is the executive director of the international peace organization World Beyond War, and he's the campaign coordinator for RootsAction.org. He's an author, activist, journalist, radio host at Talk Nation Radio, uh, and a prolific writer. He's blogging all the time at davidswanson.org and warisacrime.org, and he's written so many books. Uh, War is a Lie is the one that got me hooked, and we'll be talking today about one of the topics of his book, When the World Outlawed War. David is a living, breathing, walking encyclopedia about war and peace. He was awarded the 2018 Peace Prize by the U.S. Peace Memorial Foundation, and David is a five-time nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm so glad he's here to talk about Armistice Day and help us unmask militarism behind World War I. Welcome, David. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Today is Armistice Day, November 11th. In many countries of the world, it used to be so in the United States. Now, officially, we celebrate Veterans Day. Uh, we're going to be talking about Armistice Day today that ended World War I. We'll be talking about World War I. And, David, I'd like you to tell our listeners a lot about that massive peace movement in the decade that followed the war. And since we're celebrating Veterans Day now officially in the United States, I'd like your insights on why it's important that... Uh, your organization, World Beyond War, and Veterans for Peace, to which I belong, both say we should reclaim Armistice Day. But I'd like to start off by unmasking some militarism, looking at the causes of World War I. My high school textbook said that this war started when an archduke was assassinated in Serbia, and it just set off this massive war of millions of people killing each other. That made no sense to me. So, David, could you start us off with World War I? <laughs> I, I can try. Uh, of course, World War I uh, was raging for a few years in Europe before the United States got into it uh, and uh, was over in, uh, you know, less than another year. Uh, and uh, the uh, well was over uh, before the end of of the next year, and it, it was something that was cooked up by the the European nations, the European militaries, uh, with profit as quite a bit of the of the motivation. Uh, certainly, the 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 loans and investments by the United States uh, to the British side were a big part of the U.S. motivation for getting in. 
and it was something that was was not initiated in a moment the way one thinks about recent wars as as happening within hours or days uh, the, you know this was something planned and built up for for months it took months to ship troops to battlefields on trains and to get the trains set up to do it uh, so this was long contemplated but it was it was imagined by all sides uh, as resembling previous wars more than it resembles, in fact, later wars. That is, they, they thought of it as being something quicker uh, and and less deadly and, and less disastrous than what it was. Uh, and of course, the fact that it went on for years and years without the battle lines even moving, uh, with the troops, the, the casualties from the machine guns, from the, from the chemical weapons that far outstripped what what Europeans were used to inflicting on Europeans. It, 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 it kind of sounds like uh, our recent American war in Iraq, where we thought the, the Iraqis were just going to welcome us and throw flowers at us, and, and it was going to be done in a day. Well, that, that, in that sense, it resembles a lot of wars, because all wars, uh, as far as I know, are predicted to be less disastrous and less lengthy uh, than they are. Uh, but World War I also resembles all wars before it in significant ways that it does not resemble current wars, but does resemble how people still think of wars. That is, World War I was the last big war where the majority of the casualties uh, were actually participants in the war, where there were actually these places called battlefields, uh, where the, 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 the fantasy that people have about a war taking place somewhere on a battlefield with two teams with different colored jerseys and so forth, none of that is real anymore. In Iraq and in all recent wars, wars take place in people's cities and towns and villages and farms. Uh, there, there is no battlefield. The battlefield is the world. Uh, and the vast majority of the casualties are on one side only. And the vast majority of the casualties are civilians, men, women, children, infants. So World War yeah. One, World War One is the last war that resembles what people think war is. Yeah, and I, and I've heard you say it's also the the last war where the dead outnumbered the wounded, uh, the last war where for the most part uh, both sides of the war were not uh, armed by the same weapons companies, the last war that that was legal. And, uh, and the last, uh, where lots of people uh, believed the war lies sincerely before the war, and actually a large majority of people changed their minds afterwards. And I, I think it's so important, David, that people get that with modern warfare, that the majority of the, 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 the dead and the casualties are, are civilians. I love, there's this great t-shirt you guys have at uh, World Beyond War that says, uh, uh, the truth is the first casualty of war. Uh, the rest are mostly civilians. And, and I think that it's very important that, that people, particularly that Americans get that. I think most people around the world probably already know that. Uh, I think you're right. There's a very different perception of war in different uh, regions of the world, particularly the regions where the wars happen compared to the regions where the, the weapons are built and exported and the, and the troops are trained and exported. Uh, but the, the, the lies that got the United States into the war, the lies about aggression against the United States and about the, and the exaggerations of the, of the German uh, atrocities in the war, 
but principally the lies that it was somehow a war that was going to bring peace and a war that was going to end all wars. That those sort of lies, uh, you know, a lot of people actually wanted to see fulfilled once the war ended. Uh, and, and people who were smart enough never to have believed that nonsense also wanted those promises fulfilled. Everybody wanted to have no more wars. And so Armistice Day, uh, you know, when the war finally ended and this holiday was created uh, to mark that moment uh, each year when the war finally ended, was intended to be a moment to mark the beginning of peace uh, and was intended as a day, intended by the President of the United States and the Congress of the United States in formal statements and by everybody else to be a day to work for peace uh, and, and friendship and disarmament around the world. Uh, it, of course, is no longer that. Yes, and, and I do want to primarily talk about that, about that day and what happened after the war. But I want to back up just a little bit, David, and talk about not in too much detail, but as, as I understand it uh, from some recent uh, reading and documentaries I've been seeing, is that is that one of the reasons of this war is that uh, European powers were, were competing to carve up the rest of the world for, for colonization and to commit what I call acts of militarism, which is using your military for political and economic gain, which is basically uh, armed robbery and, and terrorism with a flag. If you look at the definition of armed robbery, it's you know uh, using force or threatening to use force to steal something. If you look at the definition of terrorism, it's uh, killing people, mostly civilians, uh, for political reasons. And so uh, at the time, as I understand it, uh, it was very important to have a navy, a strong navy, to go do that around the world. And the naval ships, the modern ships, were running on oil. And England uh, was was uh, having to get oil from Russia and the United States and wanted more oil in the Middle East. And Germany uh, wanted more and was building a railroad that would go to Baghdad to get the oil. And that railroad was bogged down in, in Serbia, uh, where this archduke was, was assassinated. Um, could you speak a little bit, though, about we're primarily talking about after war, but before the war, there were there were people who were trying to bend uh, Woodrow Wilson's ear and, and there were uh, Jane Addams, uh, uh, um, William Bryan Jennings. And um, and the idea that that I've heard you say that there was this missed opportunity um, where Wilson maybe waited too late until he had lost the trust of the Germans. Uh, for sure, uh, I, I think you know there's all there's there's this vast ignorance today about how much militarism, war making, war preparations, uh, is the is one of the leading destroyers of the natural environment. Uh, and of course, vast quantities of oil are used for the wars, not just wars fought over the oil, as as Trump is now open about, and it used to be sort of this thing that you weren't supposed to mention uh, as recently as Bush or Obama. Uh, and in fact, as you state, the, the obsession, the Western obsession with Middle Eastern oil was precisely to fuel the British Navy. Uh, so is that the, the war need for the oil came before the oil as the motivations for the war. And, and it was this, this competition over which European power is going to control which parts of Africa and, and the Middle East. Uh, that was a lot of the rivalry uh, that got this thing going, and of course the U.S. was involved in those, in those rivalries as well. Uh, yes, the, 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 
the United States uh, was keeping out of the war uh, for years uh, and yet had become a, a supplier of, of funds, of resources, of weapons to, to the British. Uh, and so uh, Woodrow Wilson, whether he really wanted to be a neutral peacemaker uh, and intended to attempt to make peace or not, could not make peace between the British and the Germans when the Germans understood him uh, and the United States to be fully on the British side. Uh, the, the Germans actually, if I'm correct, the Germans actually took out a, an ad, I think it was in the New York Times, warning Americans not to get on the Lusitania because the U.S. was supporting the, the British effort. Yeah, this is one of their more comical and yet persistent sort of zombie ideas that just keep coming back that, uh, that this innocent U.S. ship was attacked by the Germans uh, as a brutal, irrational act of, of, of aggression, and, and therefore the United States needed to get into the war. Uh, in fact, the United States didn't get into the war until long after that and other, uh, other rationale for getting into it. Uh, but th this was a ship that the Germans uh, took out ads uh, in U.S. newspapers across the United States, including in New York, right next to the ads for Voyage on the Ship, uh, warning people not to get on the ship. Uh, and in fact, it was a ship carrying uh, U.S. weapons to Britain and carrying Canadian troops to Britain. And the Germans knew this and said it at the time. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, denied it. Uh, it. It was part of uh, the reason for William Jennings Bryan's uh, resignation as Secretary of State, the, the extent to which the Wilson administration was lying about such things. Uh, yeah, and I think it's important here, David, to point out that, you know, you and I know well uh, that, that our nation puts our own troops at risk for things that have nothing to do with defense, that are about political and economic gain. And, and in terms of this, this cruise ship, uh, the United States government was willing to put innocent civilians on a cruise liner in harm's way to try to sneak weapons and troops uh, to the war while uh, feigning neutrality. And, and this is not the only time that things like this happen. And, and I think it's important for people to get that, that there are powers that be that value the fruits and spoils of war more than the lives, not only of our enemies, but the lives of our own people. And not just the U.S. government, about which you are certainly correct, uh, but the then British Secretary of the Navy, Winston Churchill, one of the slimiest, bloodiest characters in world history, uh, withdrew the British Navy uh, from protecting that ship from attack, uh, clearly for the reason of, uh, of making it susceptible to attack uh, as part of efforts to get the United States into the war on the British side. Similarly to in, in World War II, the uh, U.S. intelligence had intercepted a message uh, from the Japanese government uh, that we were, they were going to bomb Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. actually got the message before the, the Japanese ambassador got it. Um, David, can we can we switch up a bit to um, with the time we have left uh, to talk about again Armistice Day and and the movement that happened after Armistice Day, the peace movement that most Americans know nothing about, and 
and this this pact that that end up ended up being created internationally from that. Well, I think it's very important for people to remember uh, or become aware that the biggest peace movement in the United States was not in the 1960s or 70s or in 2005. It, it was in the 1920s. It, it was between 1918 and 1928, 1930-something, uh, because it was so widespread. It was nearly universal. It was led by robber barons and university presidents and bank presidents uh, and it was across the political spectrum left to right and there were there were segments of it there were schisms there were those opposed to international treaties that might drag the united states into another foreign war as they thought of europe europe dragging the united states into world war one and there were those who wanted the league of nations and the, and the world court and international treaties and agreements uh, but even these, these schisms in the peace movement had negotiations and came to agreements and figured out what they could work on together and worked on it together. And so when you and, and, and some of these schisms just historically were, were, were deep. I mean, we have things that we're divided about today in, in America, many things, uh, um, uh, say, uh, pro-life, pro-choice, uh, LGBTQ, whether or not we should have national health care at the time. People who were for and against the League of Nations, people who were for uh, temperance and for uh, legalizing alcohol. These, these, these people were together in this peace movement, correct? Uh, to some extent, on some measures. And they came to agreements to work together for the world courts with the understanding that they would, they would require certain things of the world court. Uh, Etc. The the one thing that that almost everybody could agree on was uh, an idea that came from a lawyer in Chicago who single-handedly started a mass movement that the the women's groups and the religious groups and the civic groups and everybody got involved with uh, was outlawing war. That is making war illegal. The idea being that prior to World War One and including World War One, war was not a crime under under law under any international law it was it was something you could do and, and conquest and colonialism and looting and pillaging were legal if they were done internationally uh, and, and, and so before we move on with that I, I want to just just very briefly could we talk about the, the amount of, of death and and atrocities in in World War one that shocked people there's there's a quote I have here from you speaking uh, about Armistice Day uh, last year in Santa Cruz where you said, World War I was the worst, most concentrated violence that white people had ever imposed on themselves and were not used to it. Could you, could you say a little bit about that concentrated, massive violence? Well, it was mass slaughter uh, of millions, uh, which Europeans had not done in Europe. They had only done it in America and Africa and Australia and the rest of the world. And, and so it was it was shocking to them, uh, and, and it was something they wanted to never, ever see again. Uh, and, and of course, the, the suffering from the destruction and the poverty and the, the creation through the war of the epidemic of so-called Spanish flu that killed perhaps 10 times what the war did uh, was something people wanted to never see again. The impact on, on Western culture of the war, the brutalization of the culture was something people wanted to put a stop to. Uh, and many people tried, and those efforts uh, were far more successful than we, than we recognize, uh, but were, were also far from a complete success. 
Thank you. Thank you. And let's go back to this, this idea of making war illegal. I think most people, when they hear this, that the first time I heard about this, I was, I was, I was like, I got to look this up. This sounds crazy. How come I've never heard of this? Uh, tell us more about that movement and, and about the pact it created. Well, people in the United States will mostly tell you that war is legal in, in, in contrast to people in a lot of parts of the world. Others will recognize the existence of the UN Charter uh, but point to its loopholes of wars that are authorized by the Security Council or wars that are supposedly defensive. Uh, and we'll imagine that some or all of the wars we've seen in recent decades fit one of those loopholes, although uh, virtually none of them do. Uh, virtually every war is illegal under the UN Charter. But, the, but prior to the UN Charter, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was created in 1928 uh, and is still on the books, bans all war and intentionally bans all war, including defensive wars, humanitarian wars, good wars, democratic wars, Republican wars. It bans all the, the entire institution of war. Uh, and, and, and this was something that came out of a movement that wanted to institute uh, laws and courts to, to make this take effect and wanted to change culture and disarm and demilitarize so that the institution of war would go the way of other institutions like slavery and blood feuds and dueling. Uh, and, and this is you know, still a work in progress, but conquest was virtually ended as something legal. Colonialism was virtually ended as something legal. The, the, when they built the, the General Assembly in New York for the new United Nations, they, they, they ended up having to use all the seats intended for the audience for all the new countries that it became safe to form uh, because colonialism uh, in its traditional form ended to such an extent. There's 81 nations at this point that have signed the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And, and, uh, and uh, last year you spoke in, in Santa Cruz about, about an idea of having uh, poorer nations uh, join that. I'd, I'd like to spend the rest of our time, David, uh, hearing your ideas and things that that world beyond war uh, are doing to to create uh, an encompassing peace movement and uh, and further this idea of making war illegal yeah you know the the language and the ideas of the kellogg briand pact almost the exact words uh, in some cases made it into constitutions in countries like japan and germany and italy and, and others uh, and, and in some cases are, have been really claimed and, and given strength by the people of those countries, including the Japanese. Was not the wording in the, in the Kellogg-Briand Act, was that part of, you know, part of the, the prosecutions at Nuremberg were for crimes against peace, for actually instigating a war. Did that, did that come out of Kellogg-Briand? Yes, indeed. The Kellogg-Briand Pact was the basis for the prosecutions at Tokyo and Nuremberg after World War II. Uh, of course, it was partial victor's justice. The, the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact could have been equally used against the victors of World War II, but uh, for obvious reasons was not. Uh, Robert McNamara himself later in life uh, uh, spoke about how the firebombing in Japan, of which he was a planner, uh, that, that, if they, that if the United States lost that war in the Pacific, that, that, that he uh, would have been tried for a war crime. Uh, and he ought to have been. Uh, the, the International Criminal Court now uh, is, is a further extension of this idea, very long in coming, and embodying this, this twist on the Kellogg-Briand Pact from Nuremberg that, uh, that you would prosecute only one side and call it aggression 
uh, and and allow defensive uh, war. Uh, and yet, it's it's a step forward, or would be, if the International Criminal Court, uh, you know, hadn't prosecuted 44 Africans out of 44 people prosecuted. It's it's a court only for banning war by Africans, and this is a problem. But it, it, the, what we need to get to uh, is, is a world in which even the United States, even NATO nations, can be held to the rule of law like others. Uh, and steps toward getting there include disarmament efforts, include efforts to enforce the rule of law where we can, include efforts to take money out of militarism, to divest public funds in particular from uh, profiting from war, uh, and to halt and prevent particular wars uh, as we're able. We, we have 16% of the U.S. public in recent polling by Data for Progress that want the wars to continue. 7% of Democratic Party voters who want the wars to continue, and yet they roll on, uh, you know, in largely based on a culture that thinks war is normal, war is acceptable. That's what has to be changed. That was the goal of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, was to stigmatize war, to make war something evil and unacceptable. Uh, and that's a work we have to continue. Exactly. I've heard you talk about creating a, a culture of peace, and I think that's huge. And, and here at, at Choose Life Abort War, uh, we, we have four priorities, and one of those is unmasking militarism. Uh, uh, including war as a respect to life issue, creating a culture of conscience and uh, and promoting a just peace ethic. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, World Beyond War is is doing now and and is uh, planning or doing to to create this culture of peace that we so desperately need as so many Americans are just enculturated in in a culture of death and domination and militarism? Well, we're doing a lot of educational work, uh, including creating an educational website at worldbeyondwar.org, uh, where you can sign a peace pledge and get involved in other work. We have uh, webinars, we have online courses, we have real world courses, we have books, we have speakers bureau, we have conferences, we have an upcoming uh, annual global conference at the end of May in Ottawa, Canada, where we also will be trying to shut down a big weapons fair that they have there. Uh, at that time, uh, and we're you know working on legislative efforts and and particular activist efforts in various parts of the world that you can you can find at worldbeyondwar.org. And we'll have the link to World Beyond War uh, in the description of this podcast episode for sure. And by the way, David, I don't know if 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 Greta told you, but uh, we are at at Choose Life Abort War an endorser of your peace pledge in years to come uh hope to be we'll, we will be an affiliate if not a chapter and uh maybe mention a few things that that people who aren't yet involved in the in the movement and the things you've just mentioned simple things people can do uh in, including that peace pledge well if you go to worldbeyondwar.org and you click where it says sign and you go to sign as an individual you can sign the peace pledge that's been signed in 175 countries it's just two sentences says you want to help end war and uh, and when you do so you can check boxes for how else if at all you want to be involved uh, you want to help work on closing military bases or on educational efforts or on online activism or whatever uh, and we will be more than happy to 
to work with you, including helping you form a, a local organization uh, if, if that's what you want to take on. And David, for people who are just hearing some of these things for the first time, uh, I, I just want to briefly say that uh, I'm a veteran who was involved in training uh, Latin American military officers who were uh, basically, I mean, they weren't our troops, but our troops, our, our government was arming and training and, and funding them uh, to, uh, to carry out our militarism for us. Uh, it's kind of like before we had drones, we just, you know, overthrew other countries and, and uh, trained their army to, to do our bidding. Um, and, uh, and I thought I was helping freedom and democracy when I found out the truth my heart wanted to puke and I did not want to believe, I really did not want to believe this. And, um, and I kept reading, trying to prove it was wrong and, and it kept being right. Um, for those folks, David, you've written so many books and uh, I'd like you maybe to, to name a couple of them, and particularly uh, the one that really has to do with this, this peace movement in the 1920s and the creation of the, um, the Kellogg uh, Briand Pact. Well, that book is called When the World Outlawed War, uh, because the world did so, and that treaty is still on the books, and war is still outlawed, uh, should we choose to enforce that treaty. Uh, and you can go to davidswanson.org and click on books uh, and see my books, which you can get at any place that sells books. Uh, one is called War is a Lie that helps people uh, recognize and identify lies they're being told about wars uh, more quickly, because you know, we, we sometimes have close to a majority in the United States uh, that want to start a war when there's nothing but the desperate, urgent need for war on their televisions. Uh, this includes 2003 and 2001, Iraq and Afghanistan, who predictably within a year and a half in both of those cases and many others say that that war never should have been begun. Uh, if people could recognize that sooner, uh, and could do something about it, uh, we might be able to prevent more wars from starting, which, as you might recognize even from those two examples, are very, very hard to end once started. That's right. And, and our history is so sanitized that, you know, if you, if you read David's books, it becomes really clear there's this saying that, you know, those who, who don't understand their history are, are, are destined to uh, repeat repeat the mistakes and uh, you can't rely on major uh, corporate media or, or high school textbooks that are, that are impacted by the American Heritage Foundation to give an accurate picture of war and U.S. foreign policy. So check out David's books at davidswanson.org and click on books and go to World Beyond War dot org and uh david any any last words for us uh thanks very much and happy armistice day happy armistice day to you too david thank you so much hey stay tuned to choose life aboard war podcast for peace upcoming guests include an air force chaplain who was court-martialed for applying just war criteria two experts in conscientious objection a veteran for peace who has traveled the world that's taking photographs that rehumanize the enemy. And we're going to have Jason Jones, the movie producer and human rights activist who stands for protecting the life of people who have no rights under their government because they don't have a government. They're stateless people. Jason has faced down an Al-Qaeda warlord and negotiated peace 
on their behalf. So follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And remember to choose life that we might live. Choose peace that we might see a tomorrow. Let justice roll. Roll like a river. Flow like a river down.